And as soon as we went down the road of asking the question, well, who's thinking about the words? Suddenly, the copywriters and the folks who do microcopy and all of those things came back. We realized that there are a lot of words in today's user interfaces. And that's where I think the UX writer re-emerged. This is Writers in Tech, a podcast where today's top content strategists, UX writers, and content designers share their well-kept industry secrets. Today I had the chance to speak with someone that was a UX designer back in 1978. So there isn't many people like that in the world. And I had the opportunity to learn about the history of UX design and usability design and technical writers and how they did the transition to uh, UX writing. So it was fascinating. His name is Jared Spool. Some of you, if not most of you, will probably know him for his podcast, Spoolcast. He's the founder of UIE, which is a website that was releasing content about UX design before, I believe, anyone else. He actually designed the first keyboard. We've spoke about it in the episode, so without uh, too many spoilers, I'm super happy to speak today with Jared Spool. Have fun, and if you like the episode, don't forget to share it with the world and tag Elon Musk because I want to interview him for the 100th episode of Writers in Tech. Have fun. Hey, Jared, how are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Actually, I'm having a, a wonderful day here in Israel. Shalom. Shalom, shalom. <laughs> Thank you for uh, coming. I'm, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So before start, I want to talk a little bit about how did you get into UX um, at all? And what is your uh, history with the user experience design? I didn't really ever get into it. It just sort of formed around me. It's, it's sort of like you're in the park and you put out a blanket and nobody's around and you start reading a nice book. You get really into the book and then you look up and you realize that there are hundreds of people all around you uh, reading the same book. That was the world I was in. I looked up and, and there it was. The world of UX, I mean, I started in this business in uh, 1976. So, Whoa. yeah, so it was a long time ago and we didn't call it UX then. That, that wasn't a term that came into fashion until the mid 90s. Which kind of project you had back then? Well, initially I worked on systems that were used in schools, uh, scheduling classes and printing report cards and figuring out balancing of, of, you know, if you offer eight freshman English classes, which students get into which ones. So I, I worked on those types of problems. But uh, uh, soon after that, I started working on word processors and spreadsheets and worked on the first email clients, worked on the first personal computer products. You know, if you, if you think of a PC keyboard, it's a little known fact, but there are six keys in between what's called the QWERTY array, which is the, the main set of keys on the keyboard, and mm -hmm. the numeric keypad. There are six keys that say, on a PC keyboard, that say, page up, page down, insert, delete, home, end. Yeah, I designed those. Oh, really? Yeah, somebody had to, and I was in the room at the time. <laughs> Whoa. That was, that was the world that I lived in. So, you know, and I started as basically a software engineer and then started asking the question, how is anyone ever going to figure out how to use all of the, the things we're designing? 
And from there, started to, to really think about um, what does it mean to design great products and services? I've been basically working to answer that question now ever since. Wow, this is uh, fascinating. And if you need to compare between the beginning of your career and what we're seeing today, so basically technology-wise, maybe everything changed, right? But which kind of similarities can, we, can you tell between back and today? Well, in some ways, nothing's changed, right? Because... People are the same people. Yeah, people haven't changed. We think we know how to use technology better, but then we watch somebody struggle with trying to understand a notification that came into their phone or trying to figure out why, even though they're pretty sure they know their username and password, the site won't let them in or, you know, any number of other things that happened uh, and suddenly realize, yeah, maybe we're not as good at this, this stuff as we think we are. So we're in this world where there are still too many challenges, too many complicated things, too much design that isn't good design. So in that ways, it hasn't changed a whole lot, but in some ways, it's changed a lot because when a design is a bad design, it has a lot more effect. People in the world, suddenly we're affecting a lot more people. You know, when I started in this business, if you had a product that had 10,000 users, you were one of the most popular products in the world. Now we have websites and products and services that are used by millions and in some cases, billions of users. Today, you have cats with that amount of followers. Yes, exactly. And so suddenly, we're in a different place. We are in a world where we're dealing with the rule of law, large numbers, right? So, you know, back when I was starting, if you made a product that worked okay for 80% of your users, and you were hoping for 10,000 users... Well, 80% of your users is 8,000 people, mm -hmm. okay? And only 2,000 people are not going to get the product they want. You know, it's, that's too bad, but I got 8,000 users. Now, if I have a product and it doesn't work, for, and it has a billion users, and it doesn't work for 1% of those people, well, that's 10 million people that it doesn't work for. Right. And there are entire countries with populations less than that. So suddenly we are in a difficult spot where we have to learn how to design things and be inclusive of very small percentages of our total user base. And that's really, really hard. It is because products today have to be accessible for so many people, as you said. These are great points. So basically, you're saying that the reason, the change that we've seen in the last few years is because of the rule of the large numbers. And as more people got into the pictures, we needed to make our products more accessible for them. Right. I have a device in my house that listens to me talk. Mm -hmm. And if I say the right keyword, which it turns out to be Alexa, mm -hmm. right? it will respond with the right response. But my wife is an expert in the field of elections mm -hmm. and administering elections. So she's always talking about elections. Every time she talks about elections, 
the Amazon Echo wakes up and says, what can I help you with? It's like, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> That's, to some extent, a, a bit of a problem, right? I mean, it's a very rare case that someone is in their house talking about elections. But at the same time, it's actually not a big surprise in our house, right? And maybe the first time, it could have been accommodated for. But what about the second time or the third time or the fifth time? It's these instances where it's like, okay, how do you deal with the fact that you've got this very small population that wants to talk about this word, but yet that turns out to be a big problem? And that, that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. How to create those kind of products that basically everyone could use with those very specific uh, use cases that's You can predict you have to design for that. Exactly. So I, I want to ask you a question. So 10 years ago, I would say maybe 12 years ago, we saw this massive increase with the demand for UX designers. Seeing more and more and more and more people are getting into that industry. And now you can see that more people are hiring UX designers. I feel like that in the last year, we're starting to see something a little bit similar with writers. People are hiring more writers and... They can call it content strategist or UX writer or UX web copywriter. The name is, doesn't really matter. More and more companies are hiring uh, writers today. So why do you think that the history made it like that? Right. What I'm seeing is that things are beginning to return back to where they probably should be. We had a pendulum swing. Interesting. So why do you think it happened like that? I think it happened like that because... <laughs> we screwed up in UX. There was a belief. So back when the writing team was almost as large as the development team, and back then there were no designers. If there were designers, they all worked on the development team. Back then, what those writers were writing were manuals. And basically, the reason that they were writing manuals was that you could not use the product without one, right? The product was basically useless. without the manual. That's an important thing because the usability of the product depended on the quality of the writing. And there were a lot of us who actually did a lot of research on how to write better manuals. And eventually that turned into how to write better online help and other types of what became known as user assistance. But the, the world was all about creating a more usable product, and part of that usability was dictated by this idea that you would, in essence, create a, great, a product with a great manual. And as we started to understand usability better, we got this idea in our head. And the idea in our head was maybe we could make products where you could actually use them without having to read the manual, that you could actually pick them up and just use them. And this idea that a product could somehow become intuitive, that was a great idea. That in itself was, was fantastic. And the world changed when we started to figure out how to do it. But we broke something in the process. And what we broke was this idea that By eliminating manuals, we could eliminate the need for writers. And that was the mistake. We assumed that if we weren't writing manuals, 
we didn't need to have writers. Now, one of the problems is, and you, you use the term technical writer, is that technical writers were trained to write manuals. Mm-hmm. What they were actually doing at the time, but nobody told them, was that they were designing the user experience of the product. And we never turned around and designed a user experience using writers. What happened was the writers sort of fell to the wayside. And then came along content strategy. Writing was sort of relegated to marketing. Marketing was not thinking about the experience of the product at all. They were thinking about selling. They were thinking about selling. They were thinking about communicating. But they were not thinking about how does the things that they are writing affect the experience of the user. And as a result, the organization of the writing got very confusing. And the first content strategists were all basically information architects who, were, who had an interest in, in marketing. And then, and then the copywriters got involved and people got excited about having copywriting. And then people realized that, well, the selling part is only part of the customer experience. If we really want to have an effect on the entire customer experience, we need to start thinking in terms of the words that are in the product or service itself. And as soon as we went down the road of asking the question, well, who's thinking about the words? Suddenly, the copywriters and the folks who do microcopy and all of those things came back. We realized that there are a lot of words in today's user interfaces. And that's where I think the UX writer re-emerged. And they're just technical writers in some ways. There are still people who write large manuals, and they spend very little time actually writing words, and most of their time chopping those words into little chunks to feed into data databases. But that writing component still is there. And, you know, one can argue as to whether a manual is part of the product or something that augments a product. I would argue that it's part of the product and that all those people who were putting words into manuals were always UX writers. Interesting point of view. It makes sense. I know a few UX writers today, a few content strategists today, that their work, their process looks completely different than a process of a technical writer today. Yes, but people who are UX designers for Alexa, their process is completely different than people who are UX designers for the Alexa app. So I'm not sure that the process makes the job. You know, someone who's a master sushi chef has a very different process than someone who's a master chef in a French restaurant, but they're both master chefs. That's, uh, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And frankly, I'm going to bet you see convergence between the world of filling up data databases and the world of creating interactive copy in a user interface because you have the same challenges. You still have to localize it. You still have to translate it. You still have to support a dynamic workplace. You have to have the same content show up in different sizes in different places under different contexts. I think there's harm done when we say, well, technical writers and UX writers are different jobs because I think there are skills that are being learned in each community that in fact are probably really valuable to the other community. But if we're not paying attention because we see them as a completely different career path, we're not going to benefit from that. 
Yes, I definitely agree with. But it's like it really opened my eyes to the technical writers uh, aspect because I have in my course, by the way, a lot of technical writers. We can say that they are master sushi chef, but we teach them uh, about the the French cuisine. I would say. Yeah, but imagine the sushi they could produce if they understood more French cuisine, and imagine how much they changed the cuisine and what the restaurant serves, what the French restaurant serves, if they bring some of their long-held sushi skills with them. And I think that that's, at the end of the day, that's what we're really dealing with, is this change in how we think about our work. The folks who are doing that kind of technical writing, they are handling large amounts of content on a massive scale. Right. And UX writing, as I understand it, you think about words in an app. Okay. But what happens when those apps grow? And what happens when I'm building apps where I have to have the same meaning, but of course, different words in simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese, Arabic, and Greenlandic? As soon as you start scaling UX writing, and if you think UX writing is not going to scale, then you're ignoring what has happened in every other part of the UX world over the last decade. Uh, as soon as it starts scaling and you now have to deal with an app that runs in 70 different languages on every continent, the things that the folks in technical writing have been dealing with for the last 15 years comes into play in a big, big way. Right. It's really interesting because I, uh, when I was in Berlin a few weeks ago, I met with a company named Get Your Guide. And uh, their organizational structure of writers is really interesting. And it's, uh, you just reminded it to me that they have a small team of UX writers, like UX writing experts, and they have a localization experts, which means someone from Germany, someone from like a Spanish-speaking localization expert. Um, and... I think they have like 25 different languages. And for each language, they have a localization expert. And each localization expert work probably with 25 uh, freelance translators. And that's, the, that's how they uh, scaling that. And it was really interesting to see. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I was at a DITA conference last fall. And half the exhibitors at the conference were translation companies. That's what those people have been dealing with now for, for a while. So I think that all that is, is about to come. And if you're not, as a UX writer, if you're not keeping an inventory of all your writing uh, in, a, in an application or in a product, uh, you are not going to be able to handle a major revision of your product. So you already have to have some sort of data structure and data modeling. I would say maybe a content style guide. This is something a lot of companies are working on. No, no. Content style guide is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an inventory. I'm talking about where is every message stored in the product? And can you go in and edit the messages that are delivered by the product without having to recompile the app? There is some companies today that have like internal tool that they bring. But if everybody's crafting internal tools, that means that when you hire someone from another company to be your writer, they don't have any skills to use your tools. Right. And 
you've got all this duplicated effort of these developers building these internal tools for managing text. When in fact, that's exactly the problem that the tech writer world solved a decade and a half ago. And this is what I'm saying. The problems that UX writers are dealing with today have already been solved. And they are being solved in a way that is duplicative and redundant. And I think what we're going to see is a shift where that becomes more standardized and more strategized. There's a lot of experience doing that already in the world of technical writing. Right. How did exactly the technical writers solve it? By some kind of CMS systems that you could just go inside and... Document management systems, yes. These things have existed for a decade, right? They have standard formats, so you can move documentation from one system to another, mm-hmm. with, and it retains information. They use a standard markup language underneath, SGML. This is all a solved problem, right? This is like the sushi chef reinventing knives because they don't think any other chefs use knives. But I have a question here. So we have so many products and technologies today. Let's say that we have Booking and we have Google and we have Wix and we have, I don't know, Google Payments. All of those technologies are compiled completely different by completely different developers. How exactly do you think we can create that kind of documentation system like we had with the technical writers that could work with all of the products that we have today out there? Do you think it's possible? I think it's been done. It's more than possible. It exists. Just because you don't see the monster doesn't mean the monster is not out there. Not only does it exist, but it exists in vendors that you're familiar with, like Adobe. These people have solutions to these products. Now, they may not be tuned to iOS apps or Android apps or whatever the platform is, mm-hmm. but they could be. Okay. And after all, those things basically just use forms of HTML to present information. So there's no reason why you couldn't have a React library that interfaces with uh, a documentation management system that is a standardized system such that if the developers are working in React or they're working in Angular or whatever they're working in, they just basically use this library and the text appears. And this is a solved problem. (laughs) There's nothing new in this space that UX writers are doing that hasn't been done in the last 20 years, as far as I can tell. I'm really happy that you're saying that, you know, because, um, you know, my point of view is completely different because, you know, I I know less than you are. I have less knowledge right now, less experience. And you see out there all different kinds of articles, smart articles by smart people, should writers code and all of that kind of stuff. And I truly believe that, you know, someone would have to pick up that glove and create that kind of system that will allow easily to every writer out there to do tweaks in the copy of the, of the app. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. But I don't see any reason to repeat what we have done now three different times in the history of building user interfaces. I mean, we had this technology running on Vax VMX in 1979. So this is, there's nothing novel about this. This is a well-understood problem. Uh, chunking data, doing the content model to understand how to produce the right documentation at the right time so that people get the right elements. Having a management system and a version control system that runs on top of it so that if, if changes are made, the changes are tracked. 
if it turns out that the wrong changes are made, you can roll them back and you can match the changes of the copy to the functionality of an app so that somebody's running an older version. I mean, this is one of the problems, right? You go to Google Apps and you look up help on some feature in Google Apps and there's a large chance that what will happen is uh, you will get documentation for a non-existent version of the functionality. Mm -hmm. You will get instructions that tell you to look for menu options that don't exist anymore and suggest that you fill values into fields that aren't there. And this happens because there is no way of tying a particular help entry to a particular version of the software. This is not a new problem. This problem is at least 30 years old. There have been well-designed tools for versioning the content and the documentation side by side and showing dependencies and saying, look, if we change this field, here are the, here's the text, the copy that describes the field that we have to change. Oh, and by the way, here are all the different language versions of it so that we can make sure we change it in every language simultaneously. So I read a lot about uh, your workshops. I'm following your uh, podcast and I've seen a few articles in your website. So what exactly um, can I expect to learn when uh, I'm participating in one of your uh, UX workshops? The one that's most popular, it's a workshop called Creating a UX Strategy Playbook. What you learn in that workshop is how to think about strategy, right? How to think about how your organization is going to deliver better design products and services. And uh, we talk a little bit about the writing skills that teams need to have so that they can deliver a better product for their users. But much of the workshop is, is more strategic than that. It focuses on what it really means to develop and deliver a product that delights its users. And what kind of companies usually order this kind of workshop? The workshop is mostly companies that are realizing that design is something they have to think about from a competitive standpoint. Most of the time, that's who is attending, is folks from organizations that are realizing that if they don't start treating design as something that they need to be competitively good at, they are going to be eaten by their competition. Right. That makes sense. I know that these days you're also running a newsletter about uh, UX strategies, right? Yeah. So we, we have a new newsletter that we just started delivering. And uh, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have had it out for a couple months. Mm -hmm. It's called UX Strategy with Jared Spool. And every week I send out some thoughts, sometimes a deep dive, sometimes uh, just some quick tips on everything to do with strategy, on thinking about how you talk about a vision of what your products and services could be, how you ensure that the teams have the skills that they need, how to make sure that the product roadmap contains all of the essential items that will ensure that you deliver a great product, which you know, from a UX writer perspective means that you've done the research to figure out what it is that users need to know and to be able to use the product well, that 
your writing will help with. And so that's the key, right? So, so that's, that's what we publish in the newsletter. And you can get to the newsletter uh, by going to UIE.com and you'll see right there that there's a sign up for the UX strategy newsletter and you just click on that. Put in your email address and we don't give the email address to anybody else. So it's, it'll just get newsletters from us. Cool. Amazing. This is um, super exciting. So thanks for sharing. And before we're wrapping up, we talked a few times during our conversation about research. And I really want to hear your take about, let's say that we have a listener right now, um, a UX writer uh, or a content strategist, and they want to know a few research methods that will help them to understand their users better and to create better experience for them. And do you have some tips that might help them to find those research methods? Well, if you never read Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think, that's the starting point, I think. And then the second place to start would be usability testing as a research method. And Dana Chisnow and Jeff Rubin's Handbook of Usability Testing is the sort of go-to book on that topic. Mm -hmm. So I would start there. Great. Thank you very much for coming today. Thank you for having me. Writers in Tech podcast brought you by a UX Writing Hub, which is my website, and it is dedicated for UX writers. So we have a newsletter, and we have blog, and we have a course that is dedicated for, and we have also a job board, so you might want to check out our job board as well. And it's all dedicated for UX writers as well. And that's about it. Don't forget to share this episode if you've liked it. If you have any kind of feedback for how this episode was for you. I would love to hear it because I want to improve the content that we produce for you, the listeners. So that's about it. Have a great day and I'm going to see you next time. Thank you for listening to Writers in Tech. If you like our podcast, then leave us a rating and subscribe so you're updated when a new show comes out. For more UX writing goodies, sign up for our UX writing newsletter at uxwritinghub.com. Thanks again. And that's all for this week.